This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
Rising he justified Freely forever One day he's coming Oh glorious day Oh glorious day Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. It's been several weeks since I have said anything but besides the book of Jonah, but uh, we finished Jonah last week. Today we're going to study a very, very well-known figure in the New Testament. His name is Saul. We actually know him better as Paul or the Apostle Paul, but before his encounter with Christ, his name was Saul. Now, Saul was born in Tarsus, not Tarshish. You know, we've been studying Jonah, who bought a ticket to Tarshish, which was Spain. Let me just kind of show you a map here and uh, give you a perspective. Uh, this right over here was, was Tarshish, where right, right here, Spain, where Jonah was headed to. But Tarsus is right here. This is the country of Israel. And so when we read about Tarsus, that's where it is. And, and of course, that's the uh, part of the modern-day uh, country of, of Turkey was Asia Minor back then. Now, Saul was a Jew by birth. He referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which meant... You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com, or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening. Being a pure-blooded American is completely non-existent. You know, we've all come from other cultures. In fact, to say that you are a pure-blooded American just shows your ignorance. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. Unless you are a full-blooded Native American, your family at one point was an immigrant to this country. And, and this sounds kind of funny, because, uh, but, but we're all mixed breeds. We've intermarried with other cultures. You know, for example, the background of my family, the Trussell family, is English. From what I have come to understand, in 1622, John Trussell, at the age of 19, came over from England on a ship called the Neptune. That was the beginning of the Trussells here in America. So, so the Trussells are English, but I married a Linville. They're Irish. My wife has Irish blood in her, does she ever? <laughs> and, and, and I googled what the characteristics are for those with Irish blood, and, and here's what I found out, red-haired, and missed it there, potato-loving, whiskey and beer drinkers, <laughs> beautiful, got it there, good musical talent, and, and this worries me a little bit. It says Irish women are, are usually very fertile and can bear many children in a few short years. Uh, one more thing, and my wife is the one who just told me this. She is taking a, a master's level class, and, um, but she, uh, 
she did research on this, so I'm not sure she, she knew I was going to bring this up and need this on a Sunday morning, but she said that Irish people are low-context English, and, and I didn't know what that meant, so she explained it. She said, Joe, it means that we use a lot of words to express a thought. In other words, we talk a lot. And, and because I've learned a few things during my nearly 34 years of marriage, whenever she told me that, I just smiled politely and kept my thoughts to myself, and you will be wise to do the same. But anyway, America is a melting pot of cultures and races. But it, it was different back in Saul's day. People were looked down upon if they had intermarried with other cultures. And, and Saul's family had maintained what they considered racial purity. So, so that's why Saul referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, which in, in that day made him unquestionably the best of the best. But he was also the best of the best because he was educated at the equivalent of JU, Jerusalem University, where he studied divinity and, and Jewish law under the best rabbi of the day, a man named Gamaliel. And, and no disrespect here, but please know that studying under Gamaliel was not like getting an education from an institution like KU or MU or MSU or Crowder or Pitt State. Again, no, no disrespect to those fine institutions, but studying under Gamaliel was the equivalent of saying, well, I got my doctorate from Harvard or Yale. Saul was the best of the best because of his superior education. But Saul was also the best of the best because he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day that not only controlled religion, but they also packed a powerful political punch as well. And Paul was not just a, a Pharisee in name, but he was in practice, which means he didn't just have the uh, Ten Commandments to follow, but he also followed 613 different commands that the Pharisees lived by. He was a practicing and committed Pharisee. You know, sometimes we identify people and say, well, so-and-so is part of the church of God holiness, but they're non-practicing or, or they're inactive. Uh, in fact, the software that we use in our church offices to track giving and attendance and membership, it, it has a category for inactive. And what that means is that somebody probably considers themselves to be part of this church, but they don't attend very often. And, and the sad truth is that every church probably has more inactive members than active members. And um, th this is kind of off the topic, but uh, it's a little bit aggravating sometimes, sometimes a little bit, a bit humorous. But once in a while, we will get a call um, for financial assistance. And one of the first questions we ask is, well, what church do you go to? Because you know, if they're part of another church, then their local church needs to take care of them. And Many times they will say, well, well, I'm part of your church, you know, the Church of God Holiness. And I say, what is your name? And they'll tell me. And I, you know, I realize I don't know everybody's name here, especially if they've just started coming here, but people are my business. And, and so I try to learn faces. I try to learn names. And, and so I will typically ask them, well, do you attend here? I, I guess I don't know. Do you attend here? And well, I'll found, find out that maybe they drove through the parking lot one day, <laughs> or, or maybe they came through these doors during a funeral and, and so uh, they consider themselves to be a member of the church even though they are non-practicing or, or they're inactive. But Saul was a practicing Pharisee. The Bible describes him as being flawless when it came to the law. He was the best of the best. But at the same time, Saul was also simultaneously the worst of the worst. Why? Because he completely despised Christianity. 
In fact, he was the driving force behind much of the persecution of Christians under his leadership. The Bible says that they went door to door in Jerusalem, dragging Christians out of their houses to be put in jail. Now, why door to door? Because at that point in history, the church did not have buildings, church buildings. They met in homes. And Saul pretty much single-handedly broke up the church in Jerusalem, causing the Christians to scatter away from there. So let's go ahead. That's the background information. Let's dive into our scripture. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, NIV, reads like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, what was the way? Well, during that time, Christians weren't called Christians. That, that started happening. We're in Acts chapter 9. That started happening two chapters later in Acts chapter 11. But at this time, they were either called disciples of Jesus or, or followers of Jesus, or they were called people who belonged to the way. You know, in John 14, 6, Jesus says that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so people identified this group as those who belonged to the way. But anyway, Saul went to the high priest, asked his permission to go and capture any of the people who belonged to the way. Now, did you also catch there in that first verse, it says he was breathing out murderous threats. And I want you to think about this. In the world that we live in, we tend to think of persecution as well. You know, somebody kind of made fun of me for reading my Bible at work. And we say, well, I was persecuted today. Or, or someone makes a snide comment about, you know, our being a holy roller because we go to church. Or someone called us judgmental for believing that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And, you know, that's about the extent of our persecution. It's verbal. It's, it's someone making fun of us. But in those days, in Acts chapter 9, they suffered real persecution. Not, not a little bit of harmless ribbing or being made fun of. If, if you served Christ, you could be beaten, imprisoned, or killed for your faith. And Saul was behind it all. Now, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you probably would think, well, Saul is the least likely guy to ever become a Christian. I mean, he hates Christians. He persecutes Christians. He's the driving force behind putting Christians to death. Let me just call a time out here. You know, we all have some people in our lives that we would put in that same category. Not necessarily people that persecute Christians, but people that are far from God. And we may not say this out loud, but we think this. We would identify them as the least likely to ever come to Christ. And we've just pretty much scratched them off of the list of those that will be in heaven. But, but here's what I've learned. Those who, are often, those who often appear to be the farthest from God are sometimes the easiest to win to Christ. And here's the absolute truth. I would much rather try to witness to a far-out sinner that never goes to church, has never been baptized, than to try to win to the Lord a person who has adopted the Cedar County lie... That every American who dies goes to a better place. And they're counting on their childhood baptism to get them to heaven. Not the blood of Christ, not forgiveness of their sins, but their baptism. These people are sometimes the toughest to reach because they feel they're good enough to make it to heaven on their own good works. 
But anyway, don't ever think that those people that we call rough characters and tough cookies are unreachable. Let's keep on reading. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Let me show you a map where Damascus is. Uh, Here's Damascus. Again, here's, here's Jerusalem. Damascus. There's Tarsus that we talked about earlier. This is Damascus right there at the edge of Syria. Um, Near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, let me tell you about this light. If you fast forward, and and you probably don't have time to do it right now, but in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, you find that Saul described this light as one that was brighter than the sun. Now, think about how bright the sun is. Uh, During the eclipse recently, we wore those funny-looking glasses so that we wouldn't be blinded by the sun's rays. And Paul says that the light was brighter than the sun. So the the bright light flashes around in verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Here's what I find so fascinating. All it took was one bright flash of light for God to get Saul's attention. God has his ways of getting our attention. He does it in different ways. Sometimes he does it through a tragedy. Sometimes he does it through the loss of a job. Sometimes through an illness. So, so beware. If we don't willingly follow him, he may allow something bright to get our attention. Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, notice, first of all, what Jesus didn't tell Saul. He didn't say, okay, Saul, here's the plan. What's going to happen is you're going to start churches and preach Christ everywhere, become a great spiritual leader. You're going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. But just a warning, you're going to be beaten and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked, and you're going to go to jail multiple times for your faith. What do you think Saul would have done? if Christ would have said that to him. But listen to what God says. This is very important. God keeps his instructions short and sweet. He told Saul to do one thing, and that was to get up and go into the city. That's it. And he said, once you get there, you'll get your next set of instructions. This is such an important lesson here. Sometimes when people come to Christ, we start giving them all kinds of instructions. We say, okay, you need to start reading your Bible, and a good place to start is the book of John. Don't start Genesis. Don't start Revelation. They'll just confuse you, and then you need to pray every day, and don't forget that. And, and, and I know you drink, so you need to stop drinking. I know you smoke, so you better stop smoking too. And, and I've heard you cuss, so you've got to stop doing that. And don't forget you need to be in church every week, and, and don't forget Sunday school to small groups, and, and make sure you start paying your tithe, and you know, we're giving them advice right and left. It's all good advice. But these poor new converts walk out of church feeling overwhelmed because they have just rapid fire received 20 different sets of instructions. God didn't do that with Saul. He told him one thing to do. 
And I found that when it comes to the advice that we give those who receive Christ less is more, don't overfeed them. Don't over-instruct them. There is a place for instruction. And the concept of discipleship is very biblical. But remember, we're not the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And here's what I found. It's so much more effective for the Holy Spirit to tell someone to quit smoking or drinking or chewing than it is for me to do so. In fact, in our second service, we have a young man. He quit chewing, I don't know, I think it's probably four or five, six months ago. And um, you know why he did it? It wasn't because I told him. It's because the Holy Spirit convicted him. And it's still good today. In fact, just talking to him yesterday, still good today. The Holy Spirit instructed him. Something that was a real blessing to me was when I uh, understood, or at least partially, what the, the Scripture that says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp to my feet, a light to my path is, is not like a bright headlight you know, on an airplane. You know, if, if you've ever been flying and, you know, whenever they approach the, the airport, all of a sudden they turn on those bright lights. I wish I had some of those on my car. And you can see miles and miles. It, it's not like that. Um, the Bible says this word is a lamp unto our feet. And in the Bible times, that would have probably been just a little fire, a little candle. How far can we see if we walk with a little lamp, not a mile, not even 100 steps, not even 50 steps, not even 20 steps? You know, we see far enough in front of us to safely take a step. And so God said to Saul, take step number one, go to the city. And then when you're ready for next, the next step, I'll shine the light and give you direction for that as well. And just, just kind of a, a side note, here's, here's what I found. When God seems to go silent in our lives, are, are you listening? Because I, I think that we, we really need to hear this. When God seems to go silent in our lives, and, and when we can't see God because of the darkness around us, and, and I know there are some exceptions, but many times that's because we're not following the instructions that God has already given us. It's almost as if we want new revelation. You know, come on, pastor, teach me something new. Preach something I've never heard before. Come on, break down this scripture and, and give me something new. Give me some new revelation. But I almost wonder if God is looking down saying, wait a minute, you want new revelation? Why? You're not even following the instructions I gave you earlier. You still have an assignment on the table. So why should I tell you something new until you do that? 
You know, the book of James says that to him who knoweth to do good, doeth it not to him, it is sin. And, and of course, there are two types of sin. There's the sin of commission, the sins that we commit. You know, we commit adultery, we lie, we steal. But then there are sins of omission. We omit to do something that God tells us to do. Maybe God showed you to do something a while back and you haven't done it yet. Maybe God has reminded you that you need to forgive so-and-so and you try to sound spiritual and say, well, I've forgiven them, but everybody knows you haven't. Maybe God has told you to invite your neighbor to church and and you keep putting it off. And very possibly, when we leave an assignment on the table, when there is disobedience in our lives, very possibly, God has gone silent on you. And the darkness has surrounded you because he's waiting for you to obey the last thing he showed you to do. So God said, Saul, get up and go to the city. Now, what was going on with the rest of the entourage that was traveling with Saul? Well, we, in verse 7, it says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So they heard the commotion, but they couldn't see anything. And, and, and can you imagine what they were thinking? Saul, are you okay? Who are you talking to? I know you've been under a lot of stress worrying about these crazy Christians, but you must be seeing things. Maybe we need to check you in for a 96-hour hold. Maybe we need to change your medication. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So right now, we have a man who one moment could see physically, but not spiritually. But the next moment, he could see spiritually, but not physically. Well, all of a sudden, God picks up a seemingly unrelated pawn by the name of Ananias. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And I was thinking about this. Ananias' response of, yes, Lord, tells us something. It tells us that Ananias evidently had heard the voice of the Lord before. Otherwise, he might have said something to his wife like, honey, get in here. I'm not sure, but I think God is speaking to me. That wasn't his reaction. He said, yes, Lord. Ananias had probably heard the Lord's voice before. Well, God said in verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and I imagine Ananias began to get a little nervous and he had heard about Saul of Tarsus and maybe said, God, you may not know this if you haven't been following the news on Twitter, but everybody knows this guy is out to kill Christians. And did you forget that I'm one of those Christians? In fact, let's read what Ananias said in verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I, I, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And, and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And what did God answer back to Ananias? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And God basically said, Ananias, I'm going to ask you to do what doesn't seem to make sense to you, but you're going to have to trust me. Here's what I found in my own life as a pastor. Often, the difference between where I am right now and where God wants me to be is the action or the risk that I'm unwilling to take. I want you to think about that. The difference between where I am now 
and where God wants me to be is the action or the risk that I'm unwilling to take. Now, if you're looking at the story, you're going, now, now, now wait a minute. This guy who's been murdering Christians is God's chosen instrument? Where's the standard? I mean, don't you think that you might be thinking about this? Uh, shouldn't those in ministry be held to a higher standard? And God's, Saul certainly, certainly doesn't meet that higher standard. Shouldn't there be a time of probation <clears throat> where Saul proves himself? But here's what I found. Once we are forgiven, God isn't nearly as concerned about our past as other people are. Man, I'm preaching a lot better than what you're responding this morning. (laughs) Once we're forgiven, God isn't nearly as concerned about our past as other people are. You know, we, we want squeaky clean people in ministry. But we see in God's Word that He uses former murderers, former adulterers, former thugs to build His church. God's not looking for a superstar. He's not looking for the one that's the greatest speaker or singer or who has the most charisma. He's looking for the one who will say, Yes, Lord. I did what you asked me to do the last time. I'm ready for your next assignment. And some of you here this morning may not see yourselves as someone that can make a big difference, but God may say, so what? I'm picking you. I want you. Because God seems to have this thing for calling flawed, inferior not highly talented people, and all he asks is for them to be obedient in the small things. Man, that encourages me so much this morning. You don't have to be a saint. You don't have to be a superstar. You don't have to be perfect. When God forgives us, he takes the past and puts it in the past. Amen? It's in the past. And when Ananias was obedient, look what happened in verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. So this unlikely pawn named Ananias was God's instrument to help restore sight back to Saul. Do you realize that you might be the Ananias that God is calling to go to your neighbor and help him see? Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Do you realize that you might be the one that God wants to use to save someone from hell? And, and what would have happened if Ananias would have shirked his duty? And I don't know, God, God 
probably would have sent someone else, I don't know, but, but I believe Ananias would have missed out on the blessing of having a part in the development of Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. So, two wrap-up questions, and then we're going to go to Sunday school. Is there some assignment that you left on the table? In other words, is there an area of your life where you've not been obeying? If so, there may be some darkness that God is allowing to come into your life. If so, go back to that assignment and complete it. Second question is, is there someone in your life that you think is unreachable? If so, remember Saul, the terrorist, the murderer, most unlikely person to ever turn to God. And, and as we prepare our hearts for Easter, just two weeks from today, could we begin praying for that unreachable person and maybe even invite them to church this Easter? Yesterday, I was driving around a little bit, and I was just spending some time praying, and I had a lady come into my office this past week, and she was talking about her spouse and just seemed so unreachable, so lost. And I drove by their house, and I began praying for him. I prayed, oh God, this lady's mind, her husband is unreachable. He is totally, completely forever lost. But I said, God, would you begin to work a miracle and and prepare his heart? Would you shine the light that would turn his life around? And I began to think in my own heart and mind of other people that I've kind of labeled as unreachable, that they're too far gone, They'll, they'll they'll never come to you. And I began praying for them. And so here's your assignment. You know, we're into, big into assignments right now, but here's your assignment. Over the next two weeks, I want you to be praying for that unreachable person that you think is unreachable. And God has a way. Remember, all it took is one bright light for Saul to turn his heart over to Jesus. And so could we just pray? Could we just pray for those people? You know, as we, uh, as we wrap up with prayer, if there's someone in your life that you think that might be unreachable, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, just right where you are, would you just stand right now? If there's someone that you want to just represent before Jesus, someone that you think is unreachable, would you just stand to your feet right now? And for our closing prayer, we want to pray for them. But I also want to pray if there are some of us here that we've left an assignment on the table and and we're wanting new revelation, but God is saying, no, you need to go back. You're not doing what I asked you to do before. Could we just pray together right now? Lord, we thank you for this lesson from Acts chapter 9. Lord, I first of all want to just pray for us, church people. Lord, if we're in darkness... Maybe there's some of us here that we're wanting new revelation. We come to church hoping the pastor will be able to miraculously have some new thought. 
But Lord, maybe there are some of us here that we haven't obeyed the last little bit of revelation that you gave us. And I pray that you would give us the courage to do what we need to do. And then, Lord, I want to pray for all of those people that we're representing right now that in our hearts and minds, they seem unreachable. They're, they're so lost and maybe they've never gone to church and they just grew up that way. But maybe there are others that at one point they were solid in the church, but they've just strayed away and seem so far from God right now. Lord, I pray that, I pray that right now, wherever they are, at home or at work or wherever, Father, I pray that you would zero in on them. And Lord, however you want to shine your light. Lord, with Saul, it was that bright light that was brighter than the sun. Lord, that, that turned his life around forever. And Lord, I don't know what kind of light you want to use, but I pray that there would be a bright light somehow that would shine into their hearts and lives, that they would wake up to the fact that they need Jesus. And so, Lord, I just ask right now, as we intercede for these people, some are our children, Lord, some are uncles and aunts, some are neighbors, friends. Lord, we intercede for them right now and ask that even now they would begin to, begin to get a glimpse of Jesus. And, and over the next few days, God, as we prepare for Easter, that they would somehow, some way, come to grips with the fact that they need a Savior. And God, I pray for all of these people that are being represented right now, that conviction would begin to settle in on them and that the light would begin to shine down upon their heart. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do for these people, that you're going to bring them to Jesus. Thank you, Father. Now, as we go into Sunday school classes, I pray for our teachers. Lord, they prayed, they prepared. Lord, I pray for us that we would learn. Lord, make make us people that will be able to make a difference in this community. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.